You're listening to a podcast from Riverview Church in Bonies, recorded during one of our Sunday gatherings. For more information about Riverview Church, for service times or contact details, go to riverviewchurch.uk or find us on Facebook at Riverview Bonies. Well, good morning. It's great to be with you all today. Um, finally, here we are, Philippians 3. <laughs> You've been waiting for this for a long time. <laughs> but here, here we are. But I just want to say a word before that, um, just about the fact that as we come and we join our voices together in worship, there's, there's an actual transaction that takes place between our hearts and, and heaven, where, where we're actually aligning our hearts with God. We're actually bringing ourselves before him. We're actually submitting ourselves, and we're doing it together. And that is crucially important, that the church is collected, it's gathered, that we encourage each other, that our voices rise. If you put one candle on a window, it doesn't produce much light, but if you put 20 candles there, suddenly there's so much more light and warmth. That is the church. That is the church. And so I do believe that this isn't just, oh, let's feel nice about singing. You know, let's just sing some nice songs together and dig into the tradition of it all. There's something spiritually powerful that happens in our hearts as we release our hearts to worship Jesus Christ. And so here we are in the, the, the book or letter to the Philippians, a wonderful letter. And if you've been in the church for two years, you'll know that I started this about two years ago. I'm taking about a chapter a year, but you'll be also glad to know I don't preach every week, so it's not that long-winded. But here we, here we come to, to chapter three, but I just want to give you, because it's been a while. It was before Christmas that I last spoke on this. So I just want to give you a little bit of a recap on chapters one and two. And so chapter one, firstly, it starts with this whole thing about grace and peace to us from God. That's the mega theme, if you like, of the entire letter. Grace, which is free, undeserved favor towards you from God. And peace, which isn't just this kind of like, oh, I feel nice. But is, is this deep kind of wholeness. That they're, they're standing into the true identity of what it means to be a human and what it means to be a child of God. That's peace. That's shalom peace. So those are mega themes. And then it talks about gospel partnership. And this is a great source of joy to Paul, the gospel partnership, that you and I partner together in the gospel. And this brings Paul joy, and it should bring us joy. And then in chapter one, there's this encouragement for us to grow together in love, in knowledge, and in depth of insight, so that what? So that we can know God better in our lives, knowing his good work in us through Jesus, and knowing that he will complete that work that he's currently doing in you. That's good news, isn't it? Like, he's going to complete the thing that he's already doing in you, and so we can rejoice, even in the face of opposition. That's where Paul goes with this in chapter one. We can rejoice, even in the face of opposition, and we can and should seek to live a life that is worthy of the calling that we've received. That there is an obligation on us believers. It's not that all the, all the onus is on us because he himself gives us his spirit in order to help us to do that. But there is, there is an expectation of us. Uh, and what does that life worthy look like? 
It looks like humility. Humility. It's not a very popular thing, but humility. And that is like the mega theme of chapter two, if you like, is this humility. We're exhorted in pursuit, in pursuit of this humility to consider Jesus. The, the, the one who humbled himself, even as far as to death upon a cross, as we've just celebrated now. Jesus, who, who has all the splendor and glory and the wonders of the universe can be attributed to his name, and yet he stepped down into the humility of human form and took himself to the cross to die on our behalf. That's true humility, and yet he's exalted by God the Father to the highest place. And we're called to adopt the same mindset as Jesus. That's the call on a Christian. Not grumbling, not arguing, not claiming our own merit, but rather ready to sacrifice. Sacrifice what? Our self-preservation, our self-interest, our selfishness, to, to sacrifice these things for each other and for the kingdom, to sa- sacrifice our own ambition, our own intentions, and our pride. All of these things. And our partnership in humility and sacrificial service is firstly to Him and then secondly to each other. And that has to be in that order. Listen, the church and your role within it is to move together as one in partnership with humility and sacrificial hearts that prefer each other over ourselves. So we're not individual specials. Okay, if you look at the Old Testament, God would put his spirit on people in certain times, in certain places. There were the judges, there were the prophets, there were the kings, and God would place his spirit upon them for a time, for a purpose. But in these days, as Joel says, he has poured out his spirit upon all flesh. So actually, we don't have these specials. Yes, there are people who have a gift of prophecy. Yes, there are people who are kings like King Charles. But actually, we're in a different era where he's poured out his spirit upon all flesh. And so the church isn't about trumping up individuals. Oh no, we can't hear from God unless we've got a prophet in our midst. Actually, no, that's to come through the body of Christ. And I just want to encourage that right here before I go any further. Like, ask God to pour out his spirit on you uh, and for there to be signs following that in the way that he, he may lead your heart. Maybe he'll give you pictures that are for the sharing in the church or a word of prophecy. You might feel silly at times. Like, he might give you something that you think, oh, I'm not sure if that's God or not. That's why Margaret or whoever's leading says every week, come and share it with us. That's a safeguard for you. That's a safety net for you. And we, we can help you with that in a non-embarrassing kind of way. And, and if it's right, we'll release that into the room because we want to hear what the Holy Spirit is doing. And we want to be free and becoming freer in experiencing and knowing the full power at work of his spirit within us and in the church. But it's not about individuals. It's about the body of Christ moving together as one. Listen, true moves of God in the church. You can attribute the word revival to that if you like. True moves of God have never happened on the back of any other name than the name of Jesus. 
It doesn't matter who the revivalist was. It doesn't matter who the group of faithful old people were sitting in a a little chapel in Wales praying. Like it wasn't them that caused revival to happen. It was the spirit of God. And he's not beholden to any man. But what he loves is a heart that is laid in surrender before him. If you are coming asking God for, for him to move by the power of his Holy Spirit in anything less than a position of complete surrender... Check your heart. And I say that with integrity and with love towards you. Check your heart. Because there is only one name that is going to be elevated on that final day. And it's the name of Jesus. And that's better for you. Now, if I spend all my time trying to elevate my name, trying to make this, like, I take this Riverview Church. No, let's call it Tom's Church instead. Let's, let's make it Tom Workman. This is my church. No, it's not. It's the church of Jesus Christ. Do not add Latter-day Saints to the end of that, but it is the church of Jesus Christ that this church is part of. And, and listen, you are a gift to this church. Like I'm trying to just catch the eyes of as many of you as possible. You are a gift to this church. You're not the gift, that's Jesus. But you are a gift. If you think that you are the gift, you know sometimes people come in and they think they're God's gift to the church. You know what I mean? It it happens, doesn't it? If that is you, you're an empty container. You're you're the packaging, you're the box. What we want is the gift, and the gift is Jesus Christ, okay? It's all about him. You are a beautiful, radiant, lovely container, (laughs) because the presence of God is the thing that just sets that beauty aflame. And so the first two chapters of Philippians reveal that it is all about Jesus. Wonderfully, majestically, and freeingly, it's all about Jesus. Fix that in our hearts and we'll find that we can truly soar free. Out of the cage, out of the boundaries that we put around ourselves, out of the cage that society will put us in, we can soar free if we fix our hearts and our minds on Jesus and put him before our own intentions. And, and Paul is confident that if the Philippians place Jesus rightly in their hearts and minds and lives, then not only can they live the life he calls them to live, but they'll also be a benefit and a joy to everyone around them. And then Paul comes to these words uh, in chapter 3. I'm only dealing with one verse today, but I warn you, I can take a long time with one verse. (laughs) He says this, Further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it is a safeguard for you. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a safeguard. Now, just pause there a second. How many times have you been on your computer, for those of you that are of a slightly younger generation, perhaps? Well, actually, no. Like, some of you of an older generation. It's probably more frustrating to you. How many of you have got this? And you're like, ah! And you're trying to do something. You're trying to get, I don't know, an email sent, or you're trying to finalize a deadline or something like that. And then this little spinning circle of death pops up on your screen and you don't know what to do with it and then perhaps after that this happens any windows users here you poor saps <laughs> i'm a mac boy personally it is called the blue screen of death 
Right? Have you ever had that before? Properly frustrating, right? And, and then maybe it lands on this thing afterwards. You've seen this screen before? Safe mode. Oh, that sounds really official, doesn't it? Safe mode. It occurs if the CPU or the operating system like overloads or crashes. And if you think that you've got a problem with your computer, you can put it into, don't ask me how, ask John, but you can put it into safe mode. I don't know what you do when you get to safe mode. Like, there's, like you have to have the language of binary and what have you, like computers, to be able to know what to do in safe mode. I just tap everything like, and, and just hope that something happens. That's how I deal with safe mode. But safe mode is designed to protect against corrupted files, broken systems, maligned software, erroneous inputs, and destructive user error, which it normally would be in my case. Like I've done something stupid, like I pressed this button when I should have pressed this button, and suddenly the computer goes and just blows up. Safe mode is designed to safeguard the most valuable things and diagnose the faults and give you the opportunity to remove those faults without any further damage. It's good. Safe mode is designed to restrict, repair, and recover. Restrict means to restrict the input, so you're not overloading the system anymore. It stops the amount of things that the computer's trying to do at, the, at once. It restricts. It reduces that functionality. It's back to basics, back to square one, and that's a safe place to be and then it prevents that system overloading. It repairs by going into diagnostic mode, and so you can identify where the problems are, you can troubleshoot, you, you can deal with issues, you can fix or remove those problems, even ones that are deeply embedded, if you know what you're doing, which I don't, but John does. So call John, he's our resident computer techie, don't, you? don't do that, I haven't, I haven't authorized that, leave John alone, leave John alone. <laughs> yeah, just get people from America going, is that John? His number is. Um, so, and, and the third thing is to recover. Once the problems are addressed and identified, you should be able to recover and restore. In a computer terms, we call this to reboot, to reboot the system. And that's what safe mode is all about, rebooting the system to health. So what about you? What, what does safe mode look like in your life? I'm talking about when you're facing overload, when you're feeling like you're at risk of system crash. Like every human being has a ceiling somewhere. Every human being has a limited capacity to take stress. And there will be a time where it's too much and it overloads you and there's a the risk of system crash or shutdown. What does that look like for you when you're under pressure, under attack, facing loss, facing pain, facing humiliation? Can you put yourself into safe mode? Uh, and if so, what does that even look like in human terms? And I want to be really honest here. It's not something that I always get right. In fact... I need help with this sometimes. And I don't want ever to create this weird illusion that the people who stand here are somehow better than those of you who sit there or have it more together or anything like that. It's not true. It's not true. In fact, I would even delicately hypothesize 
that anyone that does deliberately project this I've got it all together thing is somebody you should really watch because they've probably not got it all together and they don't want you to see that. It's a myth, a complete myth that pastors have to show you guys, project confidence so that you know who to follow. No, what you need to see is that we are human, that we struggle, that we face the same kind of of problems and things. So what does that look like in my life? Because I don't always get it right. Everyone has that ceiling, that tolerance, that limit. What happens when my face is scraping along that ceiling and then one other thing, the proverbial straw occurs? Honestly, I've got a few responses. (laughs) The first one is a mantrum. Yeah, you know, like that tantrum that's a man's tantrum, the inner child, something repressed in my life since I was like a toddler, suddenly bursts out. I'm literally, if that happens, I'm shocked. Like, I'm glad that that's never podcasted in my life because if I listen back to it, I'll be like, what the heck, grow up, you idiot. But it happens. Or I go to DEFCON 3 straight away. I, I just miss off DEFCON 1 and 2, and I go straight for the, I'm going to go and burn everything down. You kind of think, no! Like, that's where my heart goes, but it's like, it's all my processing, extroverting thoughts that I need to clear out of the way before I come back to a balanced place. Or the other one is just to shut down. Just go to bed. Hopefully tomorrow will be a bit nicer. <laughs> So just like, it's three o'clock in the afternoon, who cares? I'm going to bed, I've had enough of the, the world for today. You know, I know that I'm a child of God, but sometimes I can just be a child. And that's not right. <laughs> Kenny, did you just say amen? <laughs> Amazing, thank you, mate, thank you. It's not right, it's not healthy, it's not helpful, and it's not reflective of Jesus. And so... You know, when we consider the work that God is doing in us that he will bring to completion, that's part of that work, that he's reshaping me, that he's renewing my mind as I sacrifice my life as a living sacrifice to him. That, that is the transaction that's going on. And it's not complete, but it will be. And that's the good news. He will complete it. He will complete it. I'm not stuck in an endless cycle of being a man-child. I'm not stuck there, and that's good news. And it's good news, ladies, for your husbands as well. If they sometimes get stuck in that place, just remember God's doing something in them, and he will complete it. Not stuck in endless cycles. And so I'm saying that there are times where I need to go back into safe mode, not as escapism, not not as a failure or admission of failure, or even as a place of temporary kind of residence, but as a permanent abiding existence in the presence of Jesus. That's what safe mode should be. And so what could or should that look like in our lives? And Paul's answer is, brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. It is a safeguard for you. Safeguard. The, the Greek word, I'm not going to tell you the word because it makes no difference to you, but what it means is it carries a weight of like certainty or, or safety or security, surety of truthfulness. So truth is a safeguard for us. Um, like Pilate, you might say, what is truth? And that's certainly the way that society is saying it today. What's truth? Your truth? My truth? Whose truth? We're talking about objective truth is a safeguard for you. You know Pharrell Williams, that that amazing song, it's a great song called Happy. 
And it's like, you can't help but kind of clap along to it, kind of thing, and like, because I'm happy. Yeah. And he says this line like, clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. I don't even know what that means. <laughs> clap along if you feel like happiness is the truth. Like, I don't know what happiness is the truth even means, because truth is something that is stable and secure, and happiness is an emotion. How can it be true? You know, feelings are real, okay? And we need to acknowledge the reality of our feelings, but they are not truthful. Your feelings can be the most misleading thing in your life. While we're worried about those like crazy prophets or those false teachers or whatever and these wolves that might be among us, actually, if you just look inside at your own feelings, they are far more likely to be leading you astray than any false doctrine. And I'm not saying that we need to ignore like false doctrine, it's all good, but just be aware your feelings are not truthful. Happiness is, it feels like a great thing to pursue, but it can be a really slippery customer. It can be a fickle friend. It can be an elusive treasure. And happiness cannot be the truth because it's subjective. It's entirely dependent upon the surroundings and how you feel about those circumstances, all of which are transient. And so happiness cannot be our safe mode because it cannot be our certainty. It is not the truth. But on the flip side, the rejoice, to rejoice is a safeguard, as Paul says, if we employ it in the right direction. Because rather than being circumstantial, to rejoice is a deliberate, willful, thoughtful action. To rejoice is a choice. Rejoicing is not an emotion, it is a choice. But it's only a true safeguard if it's employed and anchored in the truth. Unchangeable, unshakable, unquenchable, abiding truth, which no matter what professors might tell you, is a reality. There is Truth. So again, I ask, what truth? My feelings? My circumstances? They're not unshakable or unchangeable. My, my marriage? It's not abiding forever. I, I don't adhere to the Mormon doctrine that you'll be eternally married, and Jess is probably quite thankful for that as well. <laughs> like she'll get a break, you know, at some point. <laughs> my ministry or my job? That's not unshakable. That's not untouchable. My friends, they're not unchangeable. My, my passion, that's not unquenchable. So again, what truth? What's the object of truth? Well, Paul's answer is the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. That is a safeguard for you. Look, Jesus says in John eight thirty one, he says, if you hold to my teaching, you're really my disciples. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Not a truth, the truth, and the truth will set you free. And in a few chapters later, John 14, he says, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus wants you to know he is the truth. 
He is the unshakable, unchanging, eternal one. Yesterday, today, and forever the same. Who promises never to leave nor forsake us. Wow. Rejoice in that. I mean, that's a safeguard right there. He's the one who humbled himself to death, even death on a cross, who is exalted to the highest place, who is making all things new, who has gone before us to prepare a place for us, who has written our names, Christian, in the book of life, who has declared that no one can snatch you out of his hand or separate you from the love of God, the everlasting love of God, which is given to us through Jesus Christ, the Son, him, Rejoice in him. And it's so good that it is worth repeating. Rejoice in the Lord. Paul says, it's no trouble for me to write the same things to you again. In other words, he said it before. He's going to loop back to it in chapter 4 that we'll get to in 2024. (laughs) And even then he says, rejoice in the Lord. I'll say it again, rejoice. In Thessalonians, he says, rejoice in the Lord always. This is worth repetition. It's no bother, he's saying, to keep saying this. He's not self-conscious. He's not thinking these guys are going to think I'm a stuck record because this is so foundationally important to your life that it's worth saying again and again and again and again. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. He's drawing on Psalms and scriptures that I know Paul knew so well. Like Psalm 34, the first couple of verses, verses, I will extol the Lord at all times. His praise will always be on my lips. I will glory in the Lord. Let the afflicted hear and rejoice. Glorify the Lord with me. Let us exalt his name together. You know, that's why worship is so important, because as we do that, as we come together and and we have this band that will faithfully lead us in that direction, it actually helps us to take our eyes off of ourself and off of our circumstances and off of our stuff, because believe it or not, we need help to do that, and that's what worship does. And it collectively, we encourage each other, we exhort each other with our singing to turn our eyes upon Jesus and look full in his wonderful face. You know, Paul knows the power of this safeguard in real terms. He's known the sting of the beatings, and yet he's also known the joy of the Lord as his strength. He's felt the pang of hunger, and yet he's eaten the finest breads from the bakery of heaven. He's sat in the lonely cell and yet had joy as a companion rising in his heart. And he's even seen the prison walls physically falling down as the songs of praise arose. Power when we rejoice in the Lord. Transformative. Transformative. If you need God to move in your life, which I would argue we all do, it starts with this. Rejoice in the Lord. And so he exhorts and he encourages Philippi Church, Bones Church, rejoice in the Lord with me. So back to you and I. What is pressing in? 
what is threatening, what, what is overwhelming, what is worrying, what is overloading the system? Do you feel the need to get into safe mode? Where everything else can just stop. Back to basics. Space to breathe. Like if we restrict, he will repair so that we can recover. If we will restrict, he will repair so that we can recover. And what I mean is restrict your focus by directing it to rejoice in him, in one thing. Now, you might say, yes, I know all that, but this is what the reality of life is like in my life right now. These are my circumstances. This is what's happened to me. And I can stand with you and I can say, yeah, I agree. My childhood, I don't really talk about it very often. It was horrific. I'm not exaggerating. Horrific. Since the moment I met Jesus, I made the conscious decision, I am not going to be a victim because I'm victorious through Christ. I choose to redirect the trauma to become praise. Trauma to trust. I wish I'd written that down. <laughs> I want to get practical. What can you do here and now? Well, firstly, Scripture is full of promises and truth. And yes, it can be hard because you're reading these words and they were written, some of them thousands of years ago, but it's the living word of God. That's our fundamental core belief about scripture. It's not just some ancient text that we can kind of take and leave. Like it is the living word of God without error. I mean, it might have commas out of place in our translations of it and things like that, but the content of it is unchanging. And we should never come to the Bible and apply our own thoughts and our own desires onto it. We should always let it talk to us. And I promise you, that is a safeguard for you. Don't tell the Bible what it's going to say to you. Don't tell God what he should be telling you. Be quiet and listen. How do you listen? Get into the word. Not as a legalistic thing. Not as a, oh, I feel rubbish. I haven't opened my Bible for three days. Like, take that off of yourself. Because it's not an exercise that good Christians do. It is a thing that makes believers healthier. It is a thing that embeds joy into your life as you receive, as you read those promises, as you repeat them. So here's three other R's for you. Read, repeat, remember. You read his promises. You repeat them. You, you can do that by speaking them out, by telling somebody or by just thanking God for it. Read it, repeat it, remember it. And eventually those things delve into our heart and they stay there. Even if you can't remember verbatim what that verse is or you can't say where you got it, don't worry about that. But the truth is embedded in your heart. And here's some great things to rejoice in. Rejoice that he's not turned his back on you and never will. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. 
Rejoice that he's not cancelled you. I mean, this week, what a ton of cancelling and counter-cancelling and Gary Lineker's cancelled, and so everyone, Gary Lineker's friends have cancelled the BBC. Everyone's cancelling their, their license subscriptions, and like, everyone's cancelling everyone out. Like, stop it. Like, Jesus has not cancelled you. It's the opposite. You're a child of God. You're greatly loved. You're highly valued. Rejoice that he intercedes for you, that he prays for you, is presently offering prayers for you. He calls you friend. He isn't counting our screw-ups against us. Thankfully. He's not your enemy. And he's given us this rich and great inheritance. Read Ephesians 1. Find out where we stand in the heavenly places currently. The riches of his grace and his mercy. That's truth. Your feeling isn't true. How you apply that to your heart, that, that's down to feelings. But the fact is true. So you tell your feelings where to go. You say, get in this box, feelings, because this is true, and you are misleading. Now, you might be thinking this morning, I just want my life back. Maybe you had hopes or ambitions. Maybe something's changed in your circumstances. Friendships come, friendships go. People come and go. People let you down. Your life changes. The life that you once had or you once hoped for hasn't been constant or hasn't materialized. I just want my life back. Go to the giver of life. I promise you, he wants to give life to you. I just want my freedom from dot, dot, dot. You name it, freedom from narcotic abuse, freedom from anxiety, freedom from pornography, freedom from, I don't know, like name a thousand things that we get bound up by. Go to the one who broke free from the grave. Because if a grave can't hold him, then nothing else can. If you feel like you're near overload, go to the one who says, come to me, you heavy laden. If you feel like you're just a failure, Honestly, great. Because now we can fully appreciate his power at work. Because his word tells me that his power is made perfect in weakness. You're a failure? Join me. <laughs> but I'm not a failure. And that's the truth. I'm not a failure. I might feel like a failure. But in Christ, I'm victorious. I'm a child of God. I might still screw up. I'm an impetuous child. God is vaster, greater. Heavenly Father loves you. And so my weakness is opportunity for his power to be made known. Listen, if, our, if the focus of our rejoice is in the Lord, then our focus is not upon our own stuff. I, I want to be really careful in this because... 100% I know that anxiety and depression and other illnesses and, uh, and kind of mental things going on like that are real. I know that. I've experienced that. Sometimes I walk in that. Okay? 
Because we live in a world that's broken by sin and every ailment and every sickness, whether it's in the head, in the heart, or in the body, is a result of sin. Well, here's the thing. Sin has been dealt with. Death has been dealt with. And while we're in this in-between spot, we know that he who has begun a good work in us is going to bring that to completion. And there is a day when we will stand before him, and we will see him as he is, and we will be like him because we will be transformed gloriously, wonderfully, completely new and he says now you now you're a new creation the, the, the lie that the enemy puts into those real ailments is that it focuses us entirely away from God which is the only place where we can be set free that's the enemy's plan That's this whole thing with confusing identity at the minute. It's Satan's plan to confuse you, to confuse you from your true identity as a human being and, if you're a believer, as a child of God. Reject it. I'm not saying that's easy, but reject it. It's a lie that comes out of the pit of hell. You're a child of God. You're, you're a princess. You're a, you're a prince under the king of kings. He calls you brother. Yeah. Trophy of grace. Like, just grab onto any one of these things that God is saying of you. You're the bride of Jesus Christ as the church. Radiant, being prepared, wonderful. Loved. If we can focus on God, then our reliance, our dependence, and our confidence is not in merit or skill or achievement or outward sign. And therefore, when those things are challenged, which they will be, we have something more sure and more certain to hold or safeguard us. And it starts with rejoice. Rejoice. What you rejoice in, you trust in. What you rejoice in, you love. What you rejoice in, you follow. What you rejoice in, you lay your life down for. You you make special arrangement for it. You lay other things aside for it. What you rejoice in will lead where your eyes go. So rejoice willfully, deliberately, and even in the darkest place. David being chased by somebody that he once trusted, who's trying to kill him. Constant peril and danger. And and yet he says, even though I walk through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, because you are with me. That's rejoicing right there. That's declaration of rejoicing. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of of my enemies. That used to puzzle me because I used to think, well, why would I want to sit like have my enemies like gawking at me while I'm eating? That doesn't sound very comfortable. Actually, it's making a laughing stock of the enemies. Because what the enemies want you to do is panic. What they want you to do is lose sleep. What they want you to do is lose your focus on God. And so he says, come and eat. In Colossians, it talks about how 
he disarms the powers and principalities, that, that he took away the written code, nailing it to the cross, that he made a public spectacle of them, humiliated the demonic forces. That's what Jesus does. Come and sit, even in the presence of your enemies. So I'm going to bring this in now. This safeguarding mode that Paul is describing, it's not meant to be an occasional emergency fix. It's meant to be a place of permanent residence. But the thing is, we need to learn to live there. We need to teach ourselves to live there. We, we can't expect just out of the box to have it all nailed down perfectly. You're going to mess this up. You're going to have days that feel like dark days. I want to encourage you to, to repeat rejoicing in those circumstances. Even if it doesn't feel, remember your feelings lie, even if it doesn't feel true, repeat the rejoicing, repeat the promises, repeat what God has said, tell him his faithfulness, speak it out into your own heart, preach to yourself. You know, Jeremy Clarkson, I was watching his farm thing, which is kind of hilarious, and he's trying to learn to make, and it's just Jeremy Clarkson being a bungling old fool, right? And, and he's trying to, he decides, potatoes, we're going to make crisps. And, and so he, he's like, right, I'm going to go and I'm going to make crisps. And so he gets this thing called a mandolin, which if you're a chef or if you, you know a little bit about kitchens, you know it's like a washboard with a horrible blade in it that, that's designed so that you can get really thin cuts, like crisps, okay, of things. It's ridiculously dangerous. Like, you properly need to be trained to use that properly. But there is a very quick way to learn how to use it properly, and that's to use it badly, which he did. And he, he's like, went like that, sliced off, like literally half of his thumb right there. Sorry if you're squeamish. Blood everywhere, the bone, and the, you know. And the thing is, he's inexperienced. Is he an imbecile that can never learn to make crisps? Of course not. He just needs to learn how to apply and use that tool. Learn how to apply rejoicing in your life. It, you might cut your fingers down on it. You, you might bleed in the process, but keep at it. Learn how to use that tool of rejoicing. And then eventually, and I'm not there yet either, but eventually we're able to stand in the darkest day and know that we're safeguarded in his hands. And I'm not pretending it's easy. It's not chin up. All right? It's not like, keep smiling. It's not, think good thoughts, guys. Come on. It's not even, don't show anger or sadness. Now, be honest. I'm not saying grin and bear it. I'm saying make a deliberate choice to rejoice uh, and to restrict the rejoice to be in the Lord. Not a restriction that binds you, but boundaries that set you truly free. This is my closing thought. Even a bird that is free from the cage has boundaries. It can't fly into orbit. And why would it want to? That would be dangerous for it. So there's a ceiling of its freedom. It can't fly into the ground unless it wants to smash itself on the ground. It can't fly through the ground. It has a boundary there, but it couldn't exist there anyway. It can't live underwater because it can't breathe there, but it's not supposed to be there anyway. So even a free bird has these natural boundaries. And in God, he has given us 
these natural boundaries. And yes, we humans, we want to push against those boundaries every way we can. But it's like trying to push our face into the dirt or force our heads up into the atmosphere or hold ourselves underwater. Like what we try to do in what we want to be our freedom, we want to be free to do things that kill us. We want to be free to do things that harm us. We want to be free to do things that hold us back. And it's my rights. I'm a human being. Give me my rights. No, but God has said, these boundaries are for your good. And so with this restriction to rejoice in him above everything else, that's not harm. That's freedom. That's freedom. Next week, We'll see the reason Paul offered this safeguard for true freedom, because there are those who wish to nullify that freedom in your life. And we're going to approach that next week, but let's just stand together. Heavenly Father, your wonderful Son, Jesus Christ, the radiant Prince of Glory, said that he came to give us freedom And that if we have been set free by him, then we are free indeed. Lord, I know that that is the truth of where we are. Help our hearts to follow that truth. Would you help us even now, Lord, to let rejoicing come from our lips, to declare how great and how wonderful you are, that even in our darkest spaces, you are radiant light. And that as we turn to you, you will heal, you will restore you'll reboot in every way. And I pray, Holy Spirit, come do that now. In Jesus' name.